Hello and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rania. Uh, and so we're super excited to welcome back to the show um, one of our favorite guests to have on, which is Max Blumenthal. Uh, he's the editor of the Gray Zone Project and co-host of the podcast Moderate Rebels, and also the author of a bunch of books and the writer of stuff, <laughs> which is how he wanted me to introduce him. So hello, Max. Good to be on one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> no, we're really happy to probably, have you back on. because it's Probably kind of... <laughs> one of one of like four or five I can tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We should like use it as a blurb, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of my, one of my one of the podcasts I can tolerate. Max <laughs> Um, so we're really happy to have you back on for a lot of reasons and I'll get to that in a second, but I did want to note, like we've had you, I think we've, you're probably the guest we've had on the most, um, since we started having this podcast and it's kind of interesting cause it's kind of like, it's kind of like been like a chronology of, of all the crazy left, um, left controversies that have taken place. Like we've had you on and we've talked about all those things. So like Max Blumenthal 2018 on, on unauthorized disclosure. And I guess, like, we can just jump into what we want to talk about first, which is you just returned from a reporting trip in Nicaragua. Um, so Nicaragua has been experiencing violent protests, and there's been a lot of misinformation about those protests in the media. The U.S. has played a role in trying to overthrow the government in Nicaragua. So... I guess let's start out with, um, since there's been so little coverage, can you give like a brief overview of what's taken place? And more importantly, these protests have been depicted as like democratic, a democratic uprising in Nicaragua. And you went there and investigated and you found it wasn't such a democratic agenda that the protesters had. So can you talk a bit about that? Um, yeah, I can. I mean, I think that pretty much tees it up pretty well. Um, basically, the thing that I was struck with the most, struck by the most, was the extent of sadistic violence that was meted out against average supporters of the Sandinistas um, during the period in which um, police, not the national police, were ordered to stay in their barracks. Um, and so, you know, I would actually spend 14 hour days talking to one person after another who had been tortured, kidnapped, beaten, had family members killed. I met a woman whose husband was, I didn't even realize I was, you know, sometimes I didn't even realize what, who I was going to meet. Um, some, I would just uh, look for people who were kind of involved in various events wherever there had been these roadblocks, um, which I'll, I'll explain in a second. And but I'm just giving my first initial impression. Um, and I would just be overwhelmed by their testimony. Um, this woman, Carla Teresa Torres, I met, who's a, kind of a she does community policing. She's like an anti-narcotics cop who works with at risk youth in a town, a city called Hinotepe. Um, her husband on his day off, um, he was a cop on his day off. He was kidnapped and burned alive at a roadblock on camera. And a local Catholic priest, um, you know, gave verbal assent to the torture and burning alive of this person. He was dragged from a truck and then burned alive on camera. Uh, he was filmed in order to spread fear among Sandinistas. But I mean, this is just one of so many people I met that I've, it's hard to even keep track of their names. And what struck me the most is that zero Western reporters had spoken to any of these people. Uh, these weren't obscure people. Um, I went out to Radio, Radio Ya, which is the number one radio station in Managua. It's a leftist station. They support the Sandinistas. They're not funded by the government. It was burned to the ground with all of its staff inside, and the staff narrowly escaped with their lives. So I went there to talk to them. And they said, yeah, you're the first Western reporter to come here. It's not like these people are hiding or, you know, no one knows where, who they are or they're like, you know, in Syrian rebel territory and under the control of Jaysh al-Islam and I'll get beheaded if I go and talk to them. It's like <sighs> they're just there waiting for human rights groups to come and talk to them and none of them have come to talk to them. So there's this completely deliberate omission in Western media 
of the pain and violence experienced by people who support one of the largest uh, progressive movements in Latin America, which has two to 2.5 million members. So that was just my initial impression. And then I can kind of break down what happened. Well, well I, no, I really want you to break down what happened, but real quick, just because you brought it up. Um, I saw you tweeting about this. You had visited uh, the university where there had been protests. Um, and you mentioned that like a Washington Post reporter had actually embedded with the opposition when they ran, like, and they had ransacked a bunch of stuff and that was completely missing. Um, they ransacked like a clinic and like destroyed, just, they destroyed like a, like a bunch of things and it wasn't included at all. Um, and they were extremely violent, it wasn't included at all in the report. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Washington Post had this reporter, I think his name is Joshua Hartlow, basically fly in. He parachuted in. He was supposed to meet with some Sandinista officials who were going to present their side of the story. But he went straight from the airport to that university and embedded with the quote unquote students who were not all students and were being reinforced by armed gangs. Uh, and then he helped the students produce or, or publicize uh, this sham video they produced uh, which was a version, it was actually inspired by the last messages from Aleppo, which you, probably, which you probably remember pretty well, um, mm -hmm. when the uh, Salafi jihadi rebels were being flushed out of five neighborhoods in eastern Aleppo. The English-speaking um, you know, freak show cast of Bilal Abdul Karim and Mr. Hamdo and Bana Alabed and like that whole like kind of cosplay influence operation that they created in Eastern Aleppo, got nice. together and all did, what's her name, Lena Lena Shami or whatever. Lena which totally isn't her real name, but yeah. Yeah, and they all got <laughs> together and did their last messages. Uh, I just want to say we're all going to die. And, and of course all they all- All still alive, all still they alive. All, they all are alive and like doing, some of them are doing very well. Bana just got an award from the Atlantic Council so like, uh, they all got. Bust she was out. like on the MTV Awards or something, or like the Grammy. I don't even know. She was on so these, stage at some award show. Yeah, and she was on. She was at the in the Oscars with Common. That's what it was. I yeah. mean, what is the weirdest shit I've ever seen? Um, so anyway, these students, uh, and let me. I, I should really explain the background of this more. Yeah. But but basically, these students created the same video where at the end, as they were being pushed out by, um, I think it was actually Sandinista paramilitaries were driving them out. Um, they did this video where they all cried on camera. And you, if you actually push play on the video and observe really carefully, the, the young woman who appears first uh, is waiting to, till she knows that it's recording until she begins expressing uh, oh, fear God. and anxiety. So you can see her with a completely normal expression for a brief second until she realizes it's recording. And then she starts shrieking, Mama, I'm going to die. They are coming to kill us. I love you, Mama. And this oh, video has been, it's now up on Huffington Post. It's pretty much any, you know, West, online Western media site that writes about Nicaragua embeds this video to show the terror that the students are facing at the hands of the Sandinistas. The reality is that there were many, many students uh, who suffered because of what these students had done, and they weren't just students. Um, this was at UNAN, which is one of two major public universities in Managua. The other one is UPOLI. Upoli is where the um, the unrest began, or the actually where the coup began. It started with protests against uh, social security reforms, and basically Daniel Ortega's government had proposed these reforms as a alternative to an IMF program that the business community had demanded, and their reforms were actually not an austerity program, but they were pro protested as such. Um, in protest, partly inspired by the big business community, which was going to have to pay uh, taxes into the pension system because it was no longer going to be solvent. So a lot of people went out. Um, a lot of students went out. A guy I interviewed named Leonel Morales, who is a student union leader, opened the gates at Upoli to a group of students uh, 
who were often, many of them were actually from off campus, from a private university, which is where a lot of the wealthier kids go, called UCA, University of Central America. He opened the gates to them and let them on campus. And he began protesting with them. This is at Upoli. This is April 18th. Fake news was spread on April 18th through WhatsApp and Facebook that one of the students had been killed uh, by national police. This was totally false. The student turned up alive the next day. Um, but it really set everything into motion. And Leonel Morales started to notice, as many people I interviewed who had been at Upoli did, that figures from MRS, which is the breakaway movement for the renovation of Sandinismo, these are the um, former Sandinistas who have turned against the Sandinista movement and are now really influential in the NGO sector. They write a lot of articles that are reproduced in highbrow Western journals. Uh, that they and uh, other figures, including a criminal syndicate run by a character named Viper, who has been arrested and is admitted to all of this, uh, we're bringing... Okay, Viper. I'm just saying Viper sounds like you're a criminal. Like, that's yeah, just a, anyways. well, it sounds, like I'm make, <laughs> it sounds like I'm making it up, except that he's yeah. been tried and he has confessed to being involved in arming, essentially arming the opposition. They started mm. arming up with like homemade mortars, but there were rifles brought to campus. He ran kind of an operations room on the third floor of Upoli. Um, uh, Felix Maradiaga, who is now in the U.S., who just held a... a uh, seminar at the Aspen Institute alongside David Brooks on moral leadership. Was, <laughs> this is crazy. Who is the main channel for National Endowment for Democracy money to Nicaragua, uh, was at Upoli and was heavily involved in taking what was initially a student protest and turning it into a violent rebellion. He was filmed next to Pio Ariano, who is a member of Viper's gang, uh, while Ariano waved a pistol. It's just completely unbelievable. And so Leonel Morales and another student, uh, Veronica Gutierrez, did a press conference. They walked off campus and gave a press conference before the entire national media. This is days into the beginning. This is like April 23rd. Things mm -hmm. are really starting to heat up. And they said that these aren't all students who have taken over the university. There are armed people there. They are criminals. Uh, and we don't support them anymore, and we don't support their call for regime change because they had gone from saying, oh, well, we just want the social security system to be solvent to uh, calling for Daniel Ortega to completely step down and for the pretty much the end of Sandinismo. Mm -hmm. And so they said, we don't... Leonel Morales, days later, was kidnapped from his girlfriend's house by a truck full of armed men. He was <laughs> shot, in the, shot in the face, shot in the stomach, stabbed and thrown in a ditch to die. And he was found by, uh, he managed to kind of crawl out of the ditch, uh, was hospitalized. I met him in the hospital. He's just begun talking again. Oh my God. And he is a casualty of this group that we keep hearing about uh, as peaceful protesters, simply because he spoke out and told the truth about them. Veronica Gutierrez, uh, I also interviewed, and she has been living under 24-7 police guard. And actually, I went out to um, get ice cream, or I went out to a coffee shop with her and some friends one day when she kind of went out from her compound, because it's you know daytime, she's with people, she felt safe. And we went out, out from the coffee house in separate cars, and on, on the way to see Leonel in the, in the hospital. And when we arrived, she was completely terrified because the car she was in had been followed by a man on a motorcycle who then pulled ahead of the car and started just taking pictures of her with his cell phone. She'd Jesus. been, do been doxxed. Um, she showed me some of the material that had been put online about her. Um, people had put nude photos of women who were not her online, claiming it was her. Her car and her license plate had been put online on opposition Facebook pages. Uh, they'd basically done this to so many people, but this is how it began at Upoli, and then it spread to Unan. Um, in June, the students took over Unan. Now, an important detail here is that these are public universities, particularly Unan, that were created out of the 6% movement of Sandinismo, which diverts 6% 
of the national budget from the military to public education and public services. And so this is a really beautiful campus. It has um, Sandinista murals all over it, um, but it also has uh, dormitories where students from around the country who are mostly from poor families live for free to get good educations and they have wireless access, which they don't have at home. Many of the students who occupied this school, again, came from UCA, University of Central America, which is the bougie school, the affluent school. Uh, these are students who do have wireless at home, so they can study at home uh, and get their degrees. They proceeded to ransack the women's dormitory and the reproductive, <clears throat> the reproductive health center, which served the local community, um, you know, providing contraception, uh, you know, physical therapy. And I, you know, walking through this building was just filled with rage that this Washington Post reporter had been there with these students and didn't even report how they destroyed a, pub a large part of a public university. And now none of these poor and working class students can go to school for the rest of the year because of what these more privileged students had done alongside armed gangs. The base of operations for the armed gangs was the um, child care center, which served two to 300 children of the university staff. They burned it down to destroy all of the evidence of their presence. And I found homemade mortars lying around along with assorted uh, armaments. Uh, basically, the students who were you know, the pretty, uh, you know, peaceful students would wait at the gates of the university and give interviews while these um, armed gangs would bivouac at the child care center. So that, that's really, I mean, that really is a microcosm of the whole situation there, how badly it was reported, how it is. A, one student uh, who is at Unan described it to me as a class war uh, and how they were just, their school year has been sabotaged by more privileged students. And it, that, that's, that's really what this coup was all about. My God, like, I, I just, I, I understand, it, what's really shocking about this is like, okay, this is, this is kind of the same script that you see in other, um, you know, situations like this. I mean, just so much of that is reminiscent of Syria, except in this case, I think it's much more explicit. Uh, whereas with Syria, it's a little bit more confusing because you do have a very, a very repressive, like, authoritarian government. I don't think it's the same way in Nicaragua. It's not quite like this like police state dictatorship um, the way that Syria well, is. Well, they, they say it is now. They simply say it is, but it's not. Yeah, just, but at least with not. Syria saying it, well, but at least like with Syria it is, you know what I mean? Like, so it's, it, it gets a little bit more, um, it gets easier to demonize the government. But yeah, that's what's more shocking about this is it's so much more explicit. Whereas with Syria, like, it was a little bit more confusing, uh, but also just the complete whitewashing of people who like set up base uh, in places like childcare centers in the case of Syria and hospitals, like uh, is just so similar. But I expect that from the mainstream press, but I mean, there was this article in Jacobin yesterday uh, called Ortega and the Uprising by some guy named Jeffrey L. Gould or Gould. I don't know if he says Gould or Gould, but I'm just looking at this part where he said this is his description of in April, students, some peasants and others began to protest first against the slow government response to a wildfire in a protected area and then against new Social Security taxes like th that. You even have the supposed left in the U.S. adopting this narrative that doesn't like that is completely challenged um, and basically dismantled by everything you just said. How well, the yeah. hell does it happen? Well, Jeffrey Gould has written a lot of books about Nicaragua, but he obviously wasn't there and didn't do any field work. And I'm not really sure where he's coming from. I'll address his article um, in a second, but I think there is a clear similarity to Syria that helps explain one of the biggest uh, problems in his really predictably uh, you know, condescending article, uh, which is, you know, what you've come to expect from Jacobin, you know, total condescension towards the third world left while working within the Democratic Party as the lesser of two evils. I mean, the Sandinistas can never be it's pure so ironic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, just, it's a huge contradiction. But the, 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 the clear similarity that I saw between what took place in Syria in 2011 and 2012 and Nicaragua was the <clears throat> the concept of the the tranque or the roadblock, which is 
what the Nicaraguan armed opposition used as their strategy for strangling the country's economy and basically establishing these zones of control. Uh, <clears throat> the most ferocious tranques were in Masaya. This is a city about 35 to 40 minutes from, uh, from Managua, the capital, a city of 80,000. Um, and they attempted to establish a junta there. They declared it. It was kind of a joke, but they actually had secured control of parts of the city, particularly the neighborhood of Monimbo, which is very densely populated and has narrow streets. So it's easier to kind of choke it off. And then once you, once you kind of uh, zone off these areas with these roadblocks, Oh, I should also mention many of the roads in Nicaragua um, have, are, are, they're not paved, they're like stones that are put together. Um, the stones are uniform in size. And so all you have to do is remove the stones from the road and stack them atop one another. And then you've established a really effective roadblock. So that's what they did. And then once you're inside there, you control the narrative, uh, which is exactly what the Syrian opposition did in Eastern Aleppo. Anyone who's listening to this now, look at what happened in Monimbo and Messiah, and then watch the documentary. Uh, it's 10 minutes long on YouTube, Nine Days in Aleppo, about how the Syrian opposition came in, basically the, the CIA-backed Free Syrian Army, then the, um, uh, the hardcore uh, Islamist group, which eventually became the um, basis for Nouradine al-Zenki, uh, which was called Liwa al-Tawhid, uh, they entered eastern Aleppo and set up the same kind of roadblocks, began basically choking off these five neighborhoods and set up their own zone of control. They were much more successful because, of course, the U.S. armed the opposition, unlike in Nicaragua, where they were relying on uh, criminal trafficking routes uh, for mm -hmm. small arms. So basically, they controlled the narrative that Western reporters heard. They painted themselves as resistance. Uh, the New York Times was able to embed with the tranquistas in uh, Monimbo, and nobody got to talk to their victims. And once they had choked off an area and sectored it off, they would begun, begin hunting Sandinistas. Any Sandinista Jesus. could be pulled out of their house and beaten. Um, I interviewed many people in Monimbo who experienced this. The homes of uh, Sandinista union leaders, council members uh, were burned. Their restaurants were ransacked. Um, I've posted several photos of people who've experienced this in, in and around Messiah on Twitter. And uh, I interviewed entire families who were tortured. I interviewed one family. The father was missing an eye. Uh, his, his father who is the grandfather, um, had bandages all over his leg because his legs had been slashed. The son had a huge scar across his face, and they were just breaking down in tears, telling me how they were kidnapped and tortured uh, at this same tranque roadblock that the New York Times embedded. Uh, and I had mentioned this earlier. And they um, missed all of this? Like, how? I don't understand. I understand that you're not, okay, they're not talking to the victims, but like, they missed all of the violence? Like, they just saw pretty they straight they straight up whitewashed it. It's the biggest cover-up of the, it's one of the biggest cover-ups in, uh, of, the, of the international press corps of the year. I mean, I posted yesterday video of Gabriel Vado Ruiz, um, this off-duty cop who was burned alive at the major roadblock in Monimbo on camera with the support of a local Catholic priest. I posted the video and it's what? like, I'm the only one who posted it. Like, and I interviewed his wife and, you know, I, I tweeted out a photo of his wife breaking down in tears, describing what had happened. And this is, this is just two weeks ago, this happened. Um, and opposition people came in and, and, and mocked her. Um, I mentioned Leonel Morales earlier. I tweeted a photo of him and major opposition people like Jaime Ariano, who's the, he's kind of like the opposition's uh, Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly on their main uh, channels, Cien Percento Noticias. He mocked him because he was wearing a bandage on his right arm where he hadn't previously worn a bandage. He had told us he had been bandaged up because he gets chills after coming out of surgery. And so they started saying it was fake news that he was shot on, on Facebook. I mean, the, these are the most despicable elements and they're being supported by the US and hailed as like these hopeful students. Uh, this character, Jeffrey Gould and Jacobin, was really outraged when the national police 
and the Sandinista paramilitaries, who are basically people who armed themselves to protect against this wave of terror when the police were ordered to stay in their barracks for 55 days. He said, he wrote, you know, that it was shameful that they removed these roadblocks. These, road, <laughs> these roadblocks had cost, they weren't just roadblocks. I mean, they are taking over entire areas. They were holding truckers hostage. Literally 400 trucks were kid, like basically kidnapped and prevented from, from, from moving. Half a billion dollars of the Nicaraguan economy was just destroyed. It evaporated because of this, of, of the roadblocks. Nicaragua's economy was extremely productive. It was growing at a rate of 5% a year. All that growth is gone. And I would just wonder what Jeffrey Gould or, you know, all the like Jacobin people who complain about the F train being shut down for a weekend <laughs> in Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I wonder how these fucking people would feel about the Bundy militia and any assortment of gangs. The Charlottesville Com gang, like neo-Nazis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking uh, Jason Kessler and his, like, thugs just surrounded their, uh, you know, surrounded uh, Crown Heights and Park Slope, cut it off from the rest of humanity, declared a junta. And, and, and said that anyone inside who was a member of the DSA was a target. I wonder what they would ask of their government. I wonder how happy they would be when a caravan of police came and removed these right-wing criminals from their presence. Yeah, That's the it's the same with Syria. Like, you know, it's, just, it's the same shit with Syria. It's like you have actual, like, Islamists who want to impose Sharia law, like trying to create an Islamic state just like killing minorities and killing government supporters and torturing people. And I'm like, telling you, it's, and this, like is the same, this is the same <laughs> thing we saw when Jaysh al-Islam was forced out of Eastern Ghouta and Duma and the residents came out and told BBC and UK Channel 4, all of the networks that had hyped up the rebels and been pushing for regime change. And they finally reported how local residents had li been living under complete terror and how happy they were to be liberated. And when I went into Monimbo, it was the same thing. People were just so damn happy that they were not under the control of basically criminal warlords who were extorting motorists and making everyone pay a toll. Yeah, uh, sounds... Uh... I mean, it's just, it's the same thing and the <laughs> Western press won't even report it. They're like, have you no shame, sir? <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's just... It's just, it's obviously an ongoing pattern and we can get to that in a, in, in a minute. But um, first, real quick, I do want to, I, I think Kevin maybe has like a broader question about this, but I think yeah. we want to talk about maybe some of the U.S. Because uh, you've actually covered this before you went. The U.S. Yeah. right wing in, the, in this country, not this country. Yeah, that was actually my question. Now, but, That's actually my yeah. question. So why don't I put it to you? Because you've got this picture going around of Ted Cruz posing with these students. Uh, I'll just note, because it goes along with what we've been saying, that you know, I just pulled up an article that ran in McClatchy newspapers. I don't know if it was republished from oh, yeah. the Associated Press or not, but it, it basically likens these Nicaraguan students to the Parkland students, um, comparing their struggle <laughs> to the struggle of Parkland students against gun violence. And it's really it, crazy. And uh, so what were you able to find about how the right wing conservatives in the U.S. are, are, are moving this forward? And maybe, maybe you also. I assume that part of what they're doing uh, coincides with uh, like the impact of the Magnitsky Act in Nicaragua. Like, so how are they? How are they able to? And how did they grease it so that there was this whole climate that would support this coup attempt? Yeah, no, great question. Um, there's a new article in the Guardian, which has been probably. I mean, it's, there's a strong competition going on, but probably the worst in reporting on Nicaragua. And, you know, just deliberately propagandistic. Uh, the reporter met with some some of these students in Costa Rica and, per, you know, portrayed them as kind of like victims, dissidents who are hiding out from terror, uh, who are going to be lynched if they return to Nicaragua. Uh, the students are actually staying in really expensive hotel rooms and being hosted at conferences and supported by a lot of U.S. money. Um, and 
they one of the students actually said, we are waiting for the Nicaraguan blue helmets to come and save us. We want the blue helmets. They drew an explicit. Did they mean the UN or did they mean like white helmets? Dialed? They were making, I think, an explicit reference to the white helmets and saying, you know, arm the opposition and create some titanic influence operation uh, that, you know, drags the whole Western media in. To, uh, and tugs at the heartstrings of liberals and wins Oscars so that we can get this regime change operation done. And, you know, by yeah, one guy like explicitly called for the, like a U.S. to invade Nicaragua. There was actually yeah. like an explicit call. Well, I, I mean, I interviewed the head of the main opposition station, which operates freely in Nicaragua, just as and there are opposition marches every day, which are not, you know, suppressed. Um, and this is like, Full scale, like riot, pro riot, uh, you know, tear up the country, putschist, uh, regime change, coup TV. That you know, if it existed, I mean, if RT tried to do this in the U.S., they'd be thrown out so fast, they'd be like drone bombed. This would never be allowed <laughs> in the U.S. It's twenty. It's just twenty four seven. You know, tear up the country TV. And the head of the station told me what he favored was a U.S. military operation to basically capture Daniel Ortega and his family and take them out like Manuel Noriega and put him in a U.S. federal prison. Uh, so, and then, you know, and then he said, you know, that would allow the Chamorro family to come back into power, which is the oligarchic, you know, di dynasty of neoliberal. So they're dynasty. not even like pro, they're not even pretending to be like pro. They're not even pretending. They're not pretending to be pro democracy at all. It's like they want the Western media to notice that they're deeply anti democratic. <laughs> they they really are begging. They're like challenging. To, they're like they're like I'll give you. I'll give you four million Cordobas if you show this video of us burning some guy alive. You won't do it, motherfucker. You won't do it. And they just won't. They won't. They literally could offer the Guardian four million Cordobas to show one of the many videos of them burning people alive, and they wouldn't do it. They just can't do it. I, I don't understand. Okay. Um, so, so shocking. It's so, so uh, shocking. Kevin, you had asked about the Magnitsky Act, and basically, just to back up a little bit, the U.S. since Daniel Ortega was elected, and then prior to that, um, during the 1980s, had set up uh, an arm of the State Department to fund the opposition, first through the Contras, um, through a pro-democracy front that Oliver North was helping to operate in 1985. And then as this um, apparatus became more sophisticated, they funded opposition media, like the main opposition newspaper, La Prensa, um, and started creating local human rights groups to defend, uh, to paint the Contras as uh, victims of communist terror. Uh, the main human rights group in Nicaragua, ANDPH, sorry, ANP. Uh, DH uh, is the, is that group. And so it was set up through the National Endowment for Democracy, which is the regime change arm of the U.S. government. Um, they started really returning to Nicaragua when Ortega was elected and inaugurated in 2007, uh, pumping millions of dollars in. From 2014 to 2017, the National Endowment for Democracy pumped in $4.1 million into opposition media <clears throat> One of the major figures who I mentioned earlier, Felix Maradiaga, he runs a group called IEEPP. They call it YEP in, in uh, Managua. I tried to visit him in his office, but he was in Washington collecting. Um, and basically what they do is they push for the elimination of the Nicaraguan military. Um, the military is not used against the population. It's not really a, a repressive force, but the reason they kind of want to eliminate it is to remove one more barrier to, to put it just bluntly, Western imperialism. Um, his, he's also paid by the National Endowment for Democracy, according to their own forms, to monitor the Russian and Chinese presence in Nicaragua. So it's pretty clear what his agenda is, but the main thing he does is he goes to UCA, the private university I mentioned earlier, and trains students in how to effectively use social media to drive these kind of color revolution operations like the one we saw unfold last April. Um, 
I, I mentioned that Mara Diago was in Washington recently. He was there with USAID, which has now committed a new $1.5 million to Nicaraguan opposition media and opposition groups. Um, and basically, that will be coup 2.0. So you have the soft power groups working in Nicaragua. They work openly. They're not restricted. I asked Daniel Ortega in my interview with him if he would do anything to restrict their influence, uh, which clearly upset a lot of the opposition media groups that are being funded by them. Um, and they've attacked me pretty harshly. Um, and he said that there is a new initiative to investigate uh, the use of money, like money laundering, to cause, in his words, terror. I don't know if that will include the National Endowment for Democracy, um, but just it's it's also it's worth you know stepping out of our American exceptionalist mindset and considering what how we would react if Russia or another powerful foreign country was donating that much money to our country, into our country, into civil society to promote regime change and affect a political outcome. Because this country is currently freaking out about a few Facebook pages that had zero to seven followers that were just taken down that may yeah. or may not have been Russian. This is crazy. I mean, this is a country of six million and that money goes a long way. And it contributed directly to the killing and torture and torment of so many people uh, that took place this summer. So that's just one point to make. And then I can I let me just quickly address the, the sanctions issue. Um, the Magnitsky Act was created first to target uh, Vladimir Putin and his inner circle. It was a uh, sanctions act that was paid for basically by an international con artist named Bill Browder, who gave up his U.S. citizenship to avoid paying taxes. He has he had fled Russia after making billions there and refused to pay $240 million in taxes. He left his accountant holding the bag. The accountant, who had a heart condition, died in prison. Bill Browder told this stirring story of how his accountant was beaten to death by Putin's henchmen by a vote of 99 to nothing. The Senate voted to sanction Putin's inner circle. This was the opening shot in the new Cold War. And now the Magnitsky Act has been expanded into the global Magnitsky Act to sanction any country that resists the will of the U.S. And it's being applied heavily in Nicaragua under the influence of the troika of Ileana ross Leighton, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, who are the faces of the Miami lobby. And what the Magnitsky Act has done, um, besides kind of making life difficult, for people, including the health minister of Nicaragua, I don't know why the health minister is being sanctioned, um, is it's disrupted the relationship of the Nicaraguan government, the Sandinista government, and the big business community. Um, they had a tripartite agreement between unions, business, and the government to set economic policy together in order to prevent the kind of disruptions that we saw this year. And now a lot of the big companies that have investments in Nicaragua that work inside the productive economy. We're not talking about the rentier class, but like, you know, productive business. Uh, they're afraid to work with the government because of the fear of being sanctioned. And so when the chaos erupted in April, a lot of the big business leaders, like a figure named Michael Healy, stood on the other side in the national dialogue against the government uh, because of, I think, sanctions played a major role in that. So that's really the, the point of the Global Magnitsky Act, is to pit business against governments that resist the U.S.'s will. And so it definitely set the stage for this coup attempt. You know, I want to ask you, because I heard you on your podcast give a pretty good overview of this. When it comes to Nicaragua, I mean, Nicaragua is next to all of these countries that people are fleeing, like fleeing extreme violence, in many cases, yeah. like state-sponsored violence, whether we're talking about Honduras or El Salvador. Um, and Nicar Nicaragua has been, even though it's like there, it's it's been somehow immune from the same kind of violence, which has a lot to do with the fact that it's kind of been able to keep America out. Uh, there was extreme violence in Nicaragua because of the U.S., but... Um, it's been a relatively stable country. So can you just kind of like tell us why that is? And because uh, the fact that the U.S. is trying to stoke chaos in the only country in like Central America 
South America that isn't that where people aren't like fleeing and trying to you know and like coming to the U.S. and like going through extreme risky you know trafficking routes to to get to the U.S. I mean it, it that says a lot. Yeah, I should mention that I had spent like about six months in Nicaragua before um, the election of Daniel Ortega um, and got to know the country before the current era. And, you know, partly because of the legacy of the Sandinistas, but also because of the national reconciliation where, you know, weapons were just destroyed en masse and because of the uh, existence of a public sector um, the country was safe and people were not generally trying to leave. And if they did, they would go to Costa Rica as kind of guest workers and then return uh, to Nicaragua. But the country is very safe and I, I just would walk wherever I want, wanted freely um, without the same kind of fear that I, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it fear, but uh, insecurity that I feel in the U.S. I mean, returning from my current trip uh, to Nicaragua, I came back uh, to Washington, D.C., and there had been several shootings on my block. Um, you know, it's just not the, the, the proliferation of handguns that you have in the U.S. It isn't really present in Nicaragua. It is in El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. This is the Iron Triangle uh, with, that the U.S. has substantially destabilized through proxy warfare, and more recently in Honduras through uh, a coup overseen by Hillary Clinton, which led to a migration crisis with many unaccompanied minors coming to the border, and Hillary Clinton declaring during the 2016 campaign that these children should be sent back. Uh, They're the collateral damage of her own regime change policy. And then more recently, Honduras has seen a stolen election, and there are mass protests in Honduras that are being repressed, and the OAS doesn't say shit about it, nor does our media. El Salvador is incredibly unsafe. Uh, same with Guatemala. And this partly has to do with the fact that many people had to escape from the civil wars that we fueled, along with Israel, uh, who was acting as our proxy, arming Guatemala's military. They went to the United States. Um, and the uh, indoctrination or adaptation into American gang culture and then uh, mass incarceration uh, led to a uh, plague of crime and insecurity in these countries because in the 1990s, the U.S. adopted a policy of deporting any um, immigrant who was undocumented who had a felony. And so you see the presence of uh, Mara Saltrucha in these countries. Again, Nicaragua, it, it hadn't really experienced this, but you can slowly see it seeping in. And the dam really started to burst in April um, the setting up of the roadblocks that I had mentioned before, the tranques, uh, destroy, like caused so much damage to the economy that the economy contracted, many jobs were eliminated, and now you do see a line of people in Nicaragua trying to get um, visas to go into Costa Rica. Um, you see a migration to the north. Um, there's also going to be potentially pressure on countries as far as Panama. This is something that Daniel Ortega warned about in my interview with him. And you also saw an infiltration in Nicaragua of criminal uh, trafficking networks, um, criminal gang networks that had helped supply the opposition roadblocks with weapons. So the country is slowly being destabilized. And it's just very simple. You can just draw a straight line between the U.S. destabilization of these countries and the mass migration crisis. And the fact is, people want to stay in their communities. Uh, they don't, they're not coming to the U.S. to experience the American dream, whatever it is, and to take advantage of our wonderful healthcare system. Actually, since uh, the Sandinistas have returned to power, the healthcare system has really dramatically improved in Nicaragua. And it's probably arguably better than ours in the U.S. At least it's free. Um, so it's the same thing we saw in Syria, which you've talked about before. A U.S. proxy, uh, US proxy warfare helps fuel a conflict, uh, and millions of people flee to Europe and elsewhere, and that fuels the rise of right-wing politics in Europe. Um, and we're seeing the same thing in the U.S. with the rise of the kind of uh, Buchananite wing of the Republican Party 
that has been traditionally anti-immigrant. And this has just been like a huge shot in the arm for that wing of the Republican Party. And so Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Ileana ross Leitman are doing it again. They're just, they're, they're just doing it again. And nobody's saying anything. It's like uh, we're just and blindly walking like a zombie into a new crisis. Well, it's just really surprising from, um, sorry, I just wanted to say, like, it's just really, really surprising that even as Trump is doing it, like, you still see the same pattern with whatever you want to call it, the left, I guess, that's, like, so weak, it's probably not even important. Um, but you do, it's, like, this inability to, like, put what, exactly what you just said, to put two and two together uh, and recognize that. And instead, you just see these, like, people cheerleading for various reasons, uh, right-wing, U.S.-backed, like, terror squads um, in different parts of the world. But I think Kevin wanted to... Well, yeah, I just had one more question on this subject before I, um, I, I presume you want to uh, try to cover a little bit of uh, some other stuff related to the Middle East before we conclude here. Sure, sure, but, sure. Um, I think it's important to touch on this because it flies just as well under the radar as most of what we've said here or talked about on the show so far. And I'd like to hear you speak to the role of Costa Rica in Nicaragua and and, and how the U.S. might be working through Costa Rica to, uh, to advance its policy. Well, yeah, the coast, Costa Rica historically has been a base uh, for um, American infiltration into Central America, into the entire region uh, to undermine uh, during the Cold War to undermine communism. It was the base of uh, JFK's Alliance for Progress, where he was going to kind of take the countries that were essentially U.S. vassals and organize them together against um, the spread of socialism in Latin America, targeting Cuba first and foremost. Um, this took many forms. Seeds for Peace was a really devious policy under JFK, which flooded uh, the rural market in Latin America, especially in Mexico, with surplus seeds from big agro in the U.S. and undermined the kind of campesino base uh, where socialism was being organized. And this led to the one of the first waves of mass migration to the U.S., basically poor farmers who couldn't really sell their stuff in the market anymore. Um, but Costa Rica has been flooded with U.S. aid and the country has no army because it's a US, kind of a U.S. protectorate. If you drive around Costa Rica, you'll see signs that say think in English, um, which really speaks to the kind of colonization of the country. Um, but it's also a very dynamic country and society that's made a lot of advances in uh, you know, the green economy. Um, it's, what, it's the only, I think, developing country that's expanded uh, its, uh, it, it, its, its, its forests, um, its biosphere. Um, and that's because of the it, it's based its economy kind of on ecotourism. Um, they have, you know, they do have a dynamic public sector as well. And there was strong resistance to CAFTA among uh, the Costa Rican population. But they basically their political class is firmly aligned with the U.S. and directed against the Sandinistas. And they're being I, I I'm I am not following it as closely as I should be, but it's pretty clear that Costa Rica is becoming kind of another base of U.S. operations against the Sandinistas with, with hosting all of the student leaders now um, and using cross-border traffic potentially to uh, supply the, you know, the armed elements of the opposition. Uh, that Honduras was uh, during the uh, Guatemalan Civil War. Uh, where John Negroponte actually oversaw uh, the torture and interrogation of rebel leaders. So, like, well, you know, we'll have to carefully watch what's happening there, but Costa Rica is definitely kind of a U.S. base right on Nicaragua's doorstep. The, the, and the, the other thing that I think, you know, we should just recognize is that while Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and it is a very small country. It's extremely geographically significant. Um, there's always been a plan ever since um, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the U.S. robber baron, sent William Walker there uh, to build a canal uh, in order to control shipping. 
that that plan failed. Walker was driven out of the country. Um, but now there have been plans for a canal uh, that would principally benefit China and undermine uh, U.S. control of shipping in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, this has struck fear in the hearts of the bipartisan foreign policy establishment in Washington. And they've it, there's a movement that parades itself as kind of a campesino movement against the canal um, that was heavily involved in the coup. Um, in They're accused of arming the, the roadblocks and actually manning the roadblocks. And so this is, you know, the, the fear of China in Nicaragua is part of the U.S. motivation there. But then there are the Sandinistas. Um, this is a successful movement that has 2 to 2.5 million members. And it presents an example to the rest of Latin America of progressive social change and helped inspire uh, Hugo Chavez uh, and many other figures who have, were behind the pink tide that brought socialism back to Latin America. And so the, the defeat of the Sandinistas, I think, is the key priority for the United States and its allies within Nicaragua, uh, who really represent the oligarchic class Max, I I really, really encourage anyone who's listening to go to uh, thegrayzoneproject.com, or just, I'm sorry, grayzoneproject.com, which is where, Max, you've been publishing um, all your on-the-ground reporting and just investigative reporting on this issue and other issues. But, I mean, the stuff you've done on Nicaragua, honestly, like, I don't think any other journalist has uh done the sort of investigating investigative reporting you've done on just connecting where the money's coming from, but also just your on-the-ground reporting and then your interview with Daniel Ortega, uh, which is, you're just not seeing any, I just, there's nowhere else I'm seeing any of this, well, uh, which is why, go ahead. Well, I, I, it, it's something I wanted to do in Syria or Ukraine, which are very similar situations, but couldn't just for logistical reasons in Syria, you couldn't get there. Nicaragua was very accessible. And so I was able to do it and I wondered why other reporters hadn't. Um, and I did this out of pocket. Uh, I'll be producing a documentary in the coming months with Thomas Hedges uh, that will really, I think, blow open the story of this coup and just show how color revolutions or soft coups are conducted uh, in the modern kind of internet in, in the kind of era of social media, um, and the, the really the central role of social media in driving uh, regime change, and people can support, start supporting that at um, Patreon.com/slash/GrayZone. That was part one of our interview with Max Blumenthal. If you enjoyed it, there's a part two for patrons. We talk about the Democratic Socialists of America, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the state of the left. And also, Max Blumenthal talks about the Israeli commando character in Sasha Baron Cohen's new show, Who is America? So become a patron if you'd like to listen to part two. And also, we'd like to recognize our newest patrons. We have James, John, Craig, RS, and Pat to thank for becoming new patrons of our show. We have 165 patrons now. We're on our way to our goal of 200 patrons. So... Thank you, everyone, for supporting the show and listening every week. We'll be back next week with another show.